up. Welcome, everybody, to the Unacceptable Podcast. How's it going? It's going good. We have Nathan Goodman here with us. He's a PhD student in economics and uh, writes some really interesting stuff on border policing. Um, And so we're going to talk about that because that's a spicy topic right now. How's it going, Nathan? It's going pretty well. How are you? It's good. It's good. We're all the COVID restrictions are slightly relaxing. So this is our first episode back from Ken's uh, neckbeard cave that we've done since March. Because I think I saw a flea over there. Saw your face and got excited. Um, yeah, so that's been really nice. That that's cringy. All right. I know, that's really good. It was good. It was Sorry. good. I was posting cringe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so Nathan showed us a paper, which we'll be linking in the comment. Um, it was about surveillance and border security in the U.S., which has been um, a pretty big topic of debate, especially since Trump's been elected. But I guess it's been going on for a lot longer. ICE was established far before Trump. And uh, now I think we're starting to have a bigger conversation about it. I also really liked how the paper confirmed my worldview that golf is evil because you had mentioned in the paper that they make these unethical deals uh, while golfing. So that to me is, uh, that's, I'm very happy there you go. to confirm that to you. Um, <laughs> so Nathan, do you want to talk about this paper a little bit and just sum it up and then we can discuss it a little more? Yeah. So the paper is called The Political Economy of the Virtual Wall. And what the virtual wall is, um, well, to understand it, you first need to go back to a topic that has been discussed a lot under the Trump administration, which is the idea of a physical border wall, right? Trump promise to build the wall, and his supporters will chant build the wall at rallies. And among sort of nativist and anti-immigrant populists within the U.S., building a physical border wall has been sort of a big demand. And often a compromise that's been proposed by more centrist establishment types is, hey, how about instead of building a physical wall, we'll build a virtual wall, rather than building a foreboding physical uh, wall in the um, uh, building a physical wall along the border, we will instead set up surveillance towers. We'll fly drones across the border that can surveil various people. And we will use this surveillance technology in order to fortify the border without needing to have a physical wall. Instead, what we'll do is we'll monitor everything that's happening there so that border patrol agents can come and intercept migrants, intercept, intercept shipments of illegal drugs, and so on. And so this surveillance creates a sort of virtual wall along the border. And what we argue in this paper is that the construction of this virtual wall over the years has several negative consequences. The big ones being 
the creation of relationships of cronyism between private firms that contract with the federal government in order to provide surveillance technology, and on the other hand, undermining the civil liberties of both individuals within the U.S. and migrants and prospective migrants. And so we see these sort of two dual consequences of constructing a virtual wall, namely moving economic activity away from productive activity that serves consumers who are trying to consume goods and services to enrich their lives and moves that economic activity away from that and towards building crony relationships with politicians and bureaucrats so that you can get more lucrative contracts providing a surveillance apparatus for federal border policing. Um, so that's the one thing. And then on the other hand, there's the effect on civil liberties of both immigrants and individuals who live along the border. And so some people might think of immigration restrictions as something that primarily restricts the liberty of people who aren't from the U.S. And so they, if they have a nationalist view of ethics, they might say, well, I don't need to care about that. Well, even if you don't value the liberties of immigrants, you have good reasons to be concerned about the way in which border policing functionally undermines the privacy and individual liberty of U.S. citizens as well as migrants. Yeah, yeah, that was a point that I thought I was thinking of as well, because I, I guess when we talk about immigration, we don't really discuss um, that there are people who are citizens that live on the border. And um, and so you were making the point that they're being surveilled, they're experiencing these drones flying over them all the time as well. Um, I'm wondering if that could be a case uh, or a way to kind of get the public in the U.S. to sort of maybe care more about this kind of border policing and stuff like that. Um, because it seems to me right now that there's a lot of pushback against, say, activists who um, want less restrictions on the border, who want to make the border less militarized, um, which is a view I'm assuming you're holding. So if I'm, if I'm a citizen of the U.S., which I'm not, but if I was, that was a Trump supporter, what I might say is something like, well, how are we going to secure our borders if we cannot have both a physical wall uh, or either a physical wall or a virtual wall? Um, a lot of them point to the uh, uh, to Israel, who has a physical wall, um, and say walls work. Not that we should aspire to that kind of society, but what is your response to people like that, typically? Yeah, so a big part of it is to point out that some of the threats that they're concerned about, right, so things like violence from drug cartels along the border, are threats that are themselves a result of various government policies. So for instance, the reason that people are smuggling drugs across the border, and the reason that organizations that smuggle drugs are also organizations that tend to engage in violence is in part because transactions involving drugs have been pushed into black markets. And so a lot of the adverse consequences for border communities that are associated with certain types of illicit movement across borders could be alleviated with more freedom instead of less. If you liberalize drug policy, if you decriminalize or outright legalize drugs and move them out of the black market and into a market that can have disputes resolved through more normal means, the means that you know a 
liquor store might use rather than the means that a drug cartel might use, then you're going to see a reduction in the violence associated with that trade. So people have some legitimate concerns about certain types of exchanges and operations that happen as a result of people attempting to cross borders and smuggling contraband. But I think the way to alleviate those concerns is through more freedom rather than less, because many of the adverse aspects of those um, social phenomena are a direct result of criminalization. And so that's one side of it. Another side of it is that a lot of the people who are making these arguments might not realize the extent to which this is going to undermine their personal liberties, right? So they'll say, oh, well, we'll just set up policing that's just going to affect immigrants and people who hire immigrants. Well, no, not necessarily. You're still going to have to submit to E-Verify, say, if you set up E-Verify for every employer. Um, and that's still going to slow your access to a job. Um, you're still going to, if you live in a border community, be subject to surveillance just as much as a migrant is. And maybe that surveillance isn't going to affect you as much, but the psychological effects of having a surveillance tower that's overlooking your whole town, which is the case in one of the towns that I, that Chris and I discuss in the paper, Arivaca, um, which is sort of an unincorporated community in Arizona, they're subjected to basically constant surveillance from one of these surveillance towers. And it's interesting that you mentioned Israel because they use a mix of physical walls, mm. as you mentioned, and virtual walls. Yeah. And so some of the technologies that are being used for the virtual wall are purchased from an Israeli contractor, namely Elbit Systems. And part of why they're able to advertise them so effectively to American officials is they say, look, we deal with very real security threats on our borders. We have experience developing and deploying this technology in an environment where it's very high stakes and where it's worked. So they have a track record of success in social control and control of borders that they can really use to effectively market their surveillance technology to other governments. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I recognize Elbit because I knew a bit about them from various BDS campaigns, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that is... I don't know. That's wild to me that 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 it, it's so um, systematized. Like that they just have these casual meetings with each other uh, over golf or whatever, and decide <laughs> to you know just ruin a bunch of people's lives. That's that's whack to me. Um, yeah, I mean you've alluded to it a couple times, so maybe we should talk about what these border security expos are, just so that the yeah yeah know kind of what we're referring to. Mm -hmm. So, um, these are uh, border security expos that have been held since 2005, and essentially these are big trade shows that bring together representatives from private contractors like Elbit Systems, Boeing, Raytheon, you may have heard of these firms, outside mm -hmm. of the context of border policing and more in a context of their contracting with various militaries, but since 2005 they've all come together with officials at the Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, ICE, various other law enforcement agencies. And so the big event is a trade show. So it's what you would expect. You go into a big exhibition hall. There's a lot of tables that different companies have. They're showing off their guns, their trucks, their drones, all these different forms of equipment. And you can go around and see 
um, these wares and talk to people from the companies and think about, hmm, yeah, my unit could really use this, couldn't they? But in addition to this formal advertising through the exhibition hall, it's used for networking and building social ties with government officials. And so that's where things like the golf game that you mentioned uh, come up. And so uh, the golf uh, game is happens sort of annually at the Border Security Expo. Um, they also have a shooting range event um, that happens uh, around the same time around the conference. And so there are these informal networking events, um, coffee breaks, lunches, dinners, golf games, shooting events, and some of them you have to buy extra tickets for. And one thing that's interesting about how they sell these tickets when I was looking at their website is private sector attendees have to pay more than public sector attendees. And this makes sense because the private sector attendees are going to these events in anticipation of building connections that could get them a lucrative government contract. And so they're going in thinking, I can make a lot of revenue for my firm if I build a connection with someone who has the decision-making power to decide what equipment Customs and Border Protection, for instance, is going to use next. Um, and so they, so they pay a lot more. And meanwhile, what they're paying for is connections to public sector bureaucrats. So the public sector bureaucrats don't have to pay anywhere near as high of an admission fee. So I often think about it as similar to bars that are catering primarily to heterosexual audiences and will have a ladies night, right? Where women who attend the bar can get in for free or at a discount, whereas men have to pay a higher cover charge. And that's because part of what the bar is marketing to their male clientele is you will have the opportunity to meet women you may find attractive. Similarly, what they are marketing to the clientele that consists of government contractors is you will have the opportunity to meet bureaucrats who can connect you with lucrative contracts selling surveillance systems, weapons, vehicles, and other coercion-enabling capital to the public sector. Wow. It's like a Raytheon ladies' night, you know? Exactly. That's nuts. I, I wish I knew more about what we were doing here. I know that in Canada, they try, so they kind of formed our border protection agency, the current one, after 9-11, shortly okay. after. And uh, they, really? yeah, yeah. So they had, what did they have before? They had this thing that was like a mix of different things. So like it also dealt with customs and like bringing things over the border. But then now they had a, have one that's explicit, like explicit border security. Um, and it's very um it's interesting because they're they wanted to be less like the u.s so they made it initially that you shouldn't um what do you call it arm yourself on mm -hmm. like they couldn't be as militarized um but then under our conservative government they d decided to militarize it a bit more so now we have more of a militarized border but I, I assume the circumstances are a bit different because the U.S. shares a border with Mexico. It's closer to Latin American countries that they bomb or they encourage violence in. Um, I feel like it'd be pretty easy to sneak into Canada. But you, you couldn't walk, right? Like, At no point, you don't think? Should we do a challenge? <laughs> I, I, wait, like if you think about like Montana, B.C., like I feel like there's just so much... 
Yeah, you can I get in know. somehow. I don't know. If any of our listeners want to try it, let us know. So apparently, something else that I read is that um, like the majority of illegal immig- immigration cases um, are not even by foot. Like they don't even enter through the physical border; they enter through planes, and then they overstay their visas. Mm. Um, there was a story of a musician from India. And he would just bring like a huge crew with him on his tours to the U.S. And then the crew would just stay after he every left. time. Yeah. So he was running like a, a whole thing. Yeah, like a sort of ring. <laughs> you mentioned something about coyotes in your piece, Nathan, and I knew a little bit about them, but not a lot. And that sounds kind of similar to what you were saying about how criminalizing drugs. Uh, makes things more dangerous, more securitized. And similarly, when you're criminalizing immigration in this respect, you're also creating these coyote industries. Wait, are we talking about literal coyotes? No. Okay, so what are we talking about? Um, So Nathan, do you want to explain that a bit? So the basic, I haven't done extensive research on this, but the basic idea is that a coyote is a sort of person smuggler. So they're someone who assists migrants in crossing the border, often for a very high fee. And so the reason they're able to command a very high fee is that they need to assist you in evading these border security agents. Mm -hmm. And so what they're doing is they're going to help you navigate these places. To some extent, they might also engage in various forms of human trafficking of the people that they're uh, taking over the border. So they might act coercively towards them. And so what's happened, similar to the drug case, is by criminalizing some form of activity that could be voluntary and regularized, right, uh, they have created a profit opportunity for entrepreneurs within a black market. And those who are willing to engage in entrepreneurship within a black market tend to be more willing to engage in other types of unlawful activity. And because they can't resolve disputes by turning to the government's courts, um, they have to resolve disputes on their own, and those disputes are more likely to uh, turn to violence. The other effect that I think I mentioned in the paper with this relates to the routes that these um, mm-hmm. uh, coyotes uh, take. So in the 1990s, the Border Patrol adopted a policy called prevention through deterrence, and this was designed to deter migration by making entering the co- country more costly. The basic idea would be we're going to fortify the areas around American cities. We're really going to beef up enforcement there. Because when you enter in an American city, um, say you go from uh, Nogales, uh, Mexico to Nogales, uh, Arizona, right? If you do that, you're going to um, cross um, into an area where there are restaurants, there are potentially motels, right? There are bridges, there are Uh, potentially homeless shelters, all these sorts of things that you can use to survive. By contrast, if you can't enter through a city and instead have to take a very lengthy desert route, then you're not going to have access to any amenities that can help you survive. You're going to have limited access to water, limited access to food, and so you're much more likely to die of heat exhaustion or starve in the desert, right? And so the Border Patrol was strategic about this. They thought, all right, we'll make it more costly by blocking off the easy, safe routes, and then that will deter people from coming. And it deterred some people, but some people were still desperate enough for a better life 
that they said, no, we're going to still cross. And they cross through these very dangerous desert regions. And there's multiple academic studies that basically show an increase in migrant deaths as a result of these policies, because people are taking these more dangerous routes and they die out there. And there have been some groups who have tried to alleviate some of these effects. There's a group called No More Deaths, um, and they do things like they go out into the desert and they leave water for people. Um, and they provide other humanitarian aid. And some of their activists have even faced federal prosecutions for this on grounds what? that they're allegedly harboring migrants. And I so compassion, yeah, exactly. So compassion towards migrants gets criminalized. Now, um, I would want to double check this, but I believe the um, last person who was put on trial in relation to this was acquitted, uh, Scott Warren. Yeah, um, that was who I heard about. That that was the guy. So I didn't know he was part of a whole organization. So just to play devil's yeah. advocate for a yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. Um, Go ahead. So maybe a wall would deter both the surveillance on the American citizens and the extremely dangerous routes resulting in deaths. Just to, uh, yeah, just to throw that out there. Yeah. So, yeah, there are trade-offs with any form of border policing. And the advantages that a wall might have might be that instead of using surveillance towers or drones, you could get the same sort of benefits to people of them feeling that their border has become more regularized and secured by having direct physical fencing or a physical wall. The disadvantages of this uh, might include, on the one hand, ineffectiveness. Maybe it would be fairly easy to tunnel under or to climb. And so you wouldn't actually get the um, same security benefits and people still would cross it and they'd still be more likely to cross it in the more dangerous areas because you would have a wall plus border policing in urban areas. Um, so that might be one way in which that wouldn't happen. And then other costs of the wall that are unique to it and don't tend to occur with the virtual wall as much is that Building the wall requires eminent domain, so you need to seize private property from citizens who live along the border. Um, and so while they are provided with compensation, they don't have any choice in whether their property is taken. Right. And so there are a lot of eminent domain cases that have been pending related to um, the Trump administration's attempt to build a wall, and there have been also eminent domain cases with attempts to build fencing as part of a previous bill that happened under a previous administration called the Secure Fence Act. And so there's violations of private property rights of citizens along the border. And then the third big objection that's often given to walls um, from groups like the Sierra Club is that often you're also, um, there's all, often also a lot of environmental costs because you've got this um, desert area um, and constructing walls um, uh, winds up disrupting wildlife habitat, disrupting their ability to engage in migration that they engaged in that was previously unimpeded. Um, and often, and there's another effect that I sort of left off when I was thinking of that list, but an additional effect is the impact on indigenous people that live in the area. And so this is an impact that both the virtual wall and a physical wall have, and that we discussed briefly in the paper, but there's a tribe called the Tohono O'odham Nation. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've mostly read about them, but they, uh, their territory that they had as sort of ancestral homeland stretches across both the U.S. and Mexico. And so many of their 
longstanding religious rituals as well as their community ties, um, actually acting consistently with those requires crossing the US-Mexico border. And that's legal. It's not illegal for them to do that. And right now they're allowing, um, the tribe is allowing Customs and Border Protection to engage in surveillance on Tohoto O'odham land, and that has costs for them, and they find it to be uh, pretty costly, in part because they're concerned about, you know, violations of their privacy rights, surveillance of religious rituals that outsiders aren't supposed to see, these sorts of things. Um, and also, they ex the tribal government accepts some of this surveillance as a condition of them not building a physical wall which would make their lives even harder because going through the physical wall would be even more stressful and difficult and disruptive to their day-to-day -day life than dealing with these surveillance towers, which are, I believe were built by Elbit Systems in their most recent iteration. Is it just this one tribe that makes this journey or is there, there more? Um, that's the main one I hear about when I hear about um, the effect of um, the, the effect of, border militarization and border security efforts on indigenous tribes. Mm -hmm. So I think they might be the main um, indigenous tribe that has uh, tribal lands and territory on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. But I don't want to say there aren't others because it's possible that I just haven't read about them. Right. Yeah, that's, that's interesting too. I never thought about those. Not to digress too much, but do you know what the, like, do they share with outsiders what the point of the journey is or, or... So it's not like it's a migra it's not like it's a migration or a pilgrimage. The the point is simply that they have they live on and own sort of tribal land on both sides of the borders. So oh, okay, yeah. I may have misconstrued it or described it in a way that was is similar to like um, going on a pilgrimage or something. It's not something like uh -huh. that. It's more that they their lands stretch across both um, right. Mexican right. and U.S. territory and some rituals might be tied to particular places, and then some of it is just they you know, live on these lands and they have family members who live at various parts of the land, some of them living on uh, the US side, some of them living on the Mexican side. And so it's more just a, um, tribes in the US have some degree of sovereignty um, and their sovereign lands cut across national borders in a way that makes their relationships with the U.S. and Mexican governments, mostly the U.S. government, in terms of border security efforts, a little bit uh, tense because mm -hmm. various activities that involve basically staying on their sovereign tribal lands are disrupted by border security efforts. Yeah, I'm assuming they'd be pissed as well just because these um, border lines were drawn like after they were, had already been there for a while kind of thing. Yeah. So I guess that's another sort of case and in their favor is like, okay, well, if you're going to draw this border, then you should at least let us keep carrying our, our business out. Um, I guess like one thing that I think of when we're having this discussion, though, when we're talking about the dangers it poses to migrants is that you see a lot of commentary from um nativists but even you know people who are not um super well into this issue or not even into politics where they'll think okay well then don't come like don't cross mm -hmm. the don't cross the border um you know that it's dangerous uh you're putting your family's life in danger 
So to me, when I hear this argument, it's not very appealing to me because, I mean, my family is immigrated here and I kind of understand the sort of urgency of letting immigrants in. Um, but when you hear, I'm sure you've come across people who have made these kinds of arguments and they say, well, um, the wall is actually, it might, like you said, it might protect them if it deters them from trying to make that journey. Um, and yeah, like that kind of thing. So is there, is there something that, um, how do you typically engage with these people or discuss it? Yeah. So I mean, I think part of the response has to be making it clear what types of conditions people are fleeing mm -hmm. and what some of the causes of those conditions are, right? So within various uh, Central American countries, there's a lot of gang violence, much of it linked to the drug war, right? So much of it linked to the creation of various profit opportunities um, in illicit markets. And so many people who make these journeys are fleeing very brutal gang violence, like direct threats against their families. And they don't have the direct option typically of coming in on an aircraft and then saying, I want asylum, right? So they might qualify as refugees, but not be able to claim refugee status until they've reached the US. And since they might not be able to get a visa, um, prior to entering the U.S., they have to cross into the U.S. and then try to claim refugee status. So part of it is that they're often facing pretty extreme violence in the places they're leaving, and the best way to avoid that violence is to take a very risky, very deadly, very dangerous option that just happens to, at least ex ante, at least before they make the choice, appear to be less dangerous and less deadly than what they're leaving. Um, and some of that violence, as I sort of alluded with the drug war point, but there are more reasons for this, some of this violence is a direct result of US government intervention in their countries, right? So the US government maintained an organization, for instance, called the School of the Americas for many years that essentially trained various people in military techniques, uh, trained them in of various types of techniques of coercion and violence. And many of these people uh, were part of formal governments in Latin American countries, and many of them were also part of non officially non-state paramilitary groups. So for instance, the uh, some of the right-wing death squads that have threatened union organizers in various Latin American countries were trained by the School of the Americas. And so part of what has to be understood here is this long history of the U.S. directly financing and providing training for violence in these countries. And then another side of it is the U.S. Um, pressuring these governments to in continue to criminalize narcotics in a way that creates black market profit opportunities that diverts more resources into gangs. And then those gangs engage in various threats against people. And so... Those are some of the factors. Another factor, of course, is just fleeing poverty, right? The fact that you can make so much more money even as a low-wage worker in an industry that we would think of as very low skill, like custodial work or um, being a farm worker or working in the kitchen in a restaurant, right? You can make so much more money in the U.S. than in these poorer countries. And so... To some degree, migrants make these journeys maybe not always because they're fleeing violence, but in some cases because they 
know that it's a path to much greater economic opportunity. And what's often neglected by some critics of immigration is that while many of the gains accrue directly to the migrants, the reason that they're making higher wages is in part because they are producing more. They're contributing to a production process that creates things that consumers value and are willing to pay more for. And so what immigration restrictions do in part is they depress economic activity. They prohibit mutually beneficial exchanges that benefit the migrants in a very obvious way, but also benefit American consumers, or in the case of migrants to Canada, Canadian consumers, um, in a really serious way. And so we're leaving a lot of people's economic potential sort of stifled by trapping them in an environment where they can't participate in the same types of economic activities that they could on the other side of the border. So there are a wide range of reasons people migrate, some of them economic, some of them related to fleeing violence. And both of those are valid reasons to migrate. Um, poverty is terrible. Violence is terrible. Escaping either of those things is something that's important and that we shouldn't use violence to stop someone from escaping those conditions. Um, and so, yes, it's very dangerous to cross the border, and people know that. But the fact that they're willing to do it suggests that they anticipate that it's that the rewards at the end exceed the risk to them. And that's partially because the risk that they face in the countries they're leaving is very severe. Yeah, I think there's like a, I think that one of the issues is there's a stereotype or a sort of uh, notion that's uh, pushed in the public imagination where uh, illegal immigration is just like hordes of people storming on the border with like Soros money or whatever <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, like you know on their way to destroy American culture or society mm -hmm. um, so yeah I think it is uh, good to sort of bring up these points and say like look at what they're fleeing um, on the other hand there are then left-wing objections to um, making immigration restrictions more lax, um, as you may have seen with, say, like the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign, for instance. Um, I guess now we're kind of moving more into the topic of like open borders versus not open borders, but I think it does factor into border policing a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is so like they, someone might say, yeah, I get that you are in a bad circumstance in your country, but first of all, the more if you we, like letting you in here, you're you're going to be exploited by uh, capitalism essentially, or by um, these like predatory bosses that know that you're in a precarious situation. And it's going to, uh, you're adding more people to compete with American workers, but they're going to be paid at a lower wage. So essentially, because they're illegal, so to speak, or undocumented, so they will be able to, they, were, they will be able to work for less than minimum wage, making both them and American workers sort of suffer for that. So there's, there's that kind of argument that also pushes back on ostensibly 
humanitarian grounds that isn't just being like you know let them die necessarily or like uh it comes from a i think a different intention do you know what i mean i think ken and i talked about this on, on one of the episodes a little bit and like i think uh that's definitely one of the objections I hear a lot in leftist circles. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So those types of concerns um, sort of appeal to a very basic economic intuition, right? And mm-hmm. so, if we think about a supply and demand model, the basic idea is that the supply of labor increases whenever immigrants enter the country. And if you think about a supply and demand graph, when the supply curve shifts out, the quantity that is purchased increases. But the price that is fetched, assuming that all else is equal, is lower. And that all else is equal that I mentioned is what's crucial here. Because while immigrants are workers, immigrants are also consumers, and immigrants are in some cases entrepreneurs. So in some cases, immigrants start businesses. Both of those things increase demand for labor. And so while the supply curve has shifted out, the demand curve has also shifted out. And so when both of those things are happening at the same time, we could see wages rise or wages fall. And which one is going to happen is an empirical question. It depends on whether the demand curve shifted out more or the supply curve shifted out more. Um, And as well as the sort of relative elasticities of these demand and supply curves. The other thing to keep in mind is that there's not one single price of labor, right? Workers aren't all paid the same thing. So workers are, in some cases, directly competing with each other. They're direct substitutes for one another. But in other cases, workers are complementary with one another, right? So if I am a wait, I'm part of wait staff at a restaurant and I don't work back in the kitchen, an increase in the number of chefs might not actually make my wages fall. It might make my wages rise because the kitchen becomes more productive which means that we're able to serve more meals or better meals, and that increases demand for my labor um, or increases the tips that I can receive because the amount that we're able to charge for the meals that we're selling increase. And so while some workers are direct substitutes competing with one another, some workers find that the talents and skills that are being used are complementary and that hiring more workers can result in an increase in their wages. And so basic economic theory doesn't give us a direct answer as to whether workers are going to see their wages rise or fall as a result of immigration. It's an empirical question because multiple things are changing at the same time. It's not just an increase in labor supply within a homogeneous labor market. And so the empirical literature on this is mixed. Um, but most studies tend to find that most American workers are made better off. They're made better off both through their wages being able to purchase more because more is being produced, and they're made better off because they're often interacting within production processes where immigrant workers are playing a role in the production process that helps make them more productive. So you might see immigrants who... who can't speak English or who have poor English skills get hired in the kitchen to work as cooks, um, while um, American workers with similar education levels get hired to work as waitstaff. And their work as waitstaff might see 
increasing wages in part as a result of the increased immigrant labor in um, the kitchen. And so this difference in skill sets that results from having a different first language can lead to what might at first look like a situation that's going to lead to their wages falling, resulting in their wages rising. I don't have the empirical papers on this at my fingertips, so I'm not comfortable giving you direct quantitative estimates of the effects of immigration on wages, but there are some studies that show no effect, many studies that show positive effects on workers' wages, and then the studies that tend to show the most pessimistic estimates of the effect of immigration on wages tend to come from an economist at Harvard named George Borjas, and his papers tend to find that most American workers um, see their wages increase, but high school dropouts see their wages fall. Uh-oh. So That's high school dropouts tend to find themselves in direct uh, competition with immigrant workers uh, from, as a result in, in, in his research. So the literature is mixed. Um, there are valid concerns about low-skilled American-born workers facing declines in their wages, um, but that is not an airtight finding. There's a mixed literature, and there are ways we can address those concerns that don't necessarily involve restricting immigration. So one thing we could do, for instance, is we could legalize immigrants so that they can join unions without facing a um, risk of their boss saying, oh, you're unionizing? Let me just call up ICE and have you deported, right? So the other thing that's worth keeping in mind is that immigration law does restrict employers' access to labor, but it also employ gives employers access to a threat that they can use against their workers to keep them in line. Opening borders also potentially um, could uh, alleviate some of the wage-depressing effects of immigration to whatever extent they exist by allowing immigrants to move between jobs. So this goes away from undocumented immigrants, but immigrants who are here on special visas, like work visas, H-1B visas and so on, those visas are tied to a specific employer. So they don't have the option to, if they say, get dissatisfied with their employer, start just filling out job applications at other um, businesses. Instead, they have to either leave the country or stay with their current employer for the most part, unless they jump through some additional bureaucratic hoops with the immigration system. So to some extent, immigration restrictions can depress wages by restricting both workers' exit options and their options to use their voice and band together with their fellow workers to unionize. And that's why some labor unions, such as the AFL-CIO, have moved away from some of their previous immigration restrictionist positions towards doing things like working with immigrants' rights organizations to organize May Day rallies and such. So to some degree, at least some unions are recognizing, hey, prospective union members are facing particular types of abuses from their bosses specifically because they don't have as many exit options or as many options to raise their voice because of the threats that immigration law imposes upon them. So would you, just to ask super simply, would you be like, consider yourself open border or what kind of specifically would you propose? I know it's a huge yeah. question, but... <laughs> Yeah, I would consider myself an advocate of open borders. And what I mean by that is a presumption of liberty in migration. And so right now, the presumption is that you are not authorized to move to a new country unless you 
jump through some bureaucratic hoops and fit some category that's been carved out by a bureaucracy. And so that might be you're a high-skilled worker um, whose skills are in demand and can't be met by a um, by an American worker, and so a company has successfully been able to apply for an H-1B visa for you. It might be you're a close relative or a spouse of an American citizen. It might be that you don't fall into any of these categories, but you won the what's called diversity lottery. And so there's sort of a lottery where people are essentially can apply, and then they're randomly selected from sort of a quota for their country. And so the presumption is most people from their country who want to come can't come, and then we'll select the lucky few who get to come. And so right now, the presumption is a presumption of restriction, a presumption that you can't come in. Whereas I would like to see, at the very least, a presumption of liberty and migration. And so the idea would be, the assumption is you can travel across the border, move here, be, take a job without having to get special permission from the U.S. government. Um, you can enroll in the university without having to get a special visa from the U.S. government, and so on. And the only exclusions would be ones that are specifically justified by a policy concern. So if the uh, if there's a global pandemic and the government wants to say, look, if you want to come here from another country, we're going to require you to stay in quarantine for 14 days um, first before you interact with anyone, because um, you're coming from Italy and they've been having serious trouble with the pandemic, then that I think is basically fine. If they decide we're going to screen people at borders and if they're on a list of people who are known members of terrorist organizations, I don't think, oh man, that's a horrible violation of individual rights that you're saying that ISIS member can't uh, <laughs> enter at that port of entry. But I do think that if you say, oh, you're working at a factory without official permission from the U.S. government, that is an offense and we will lock you in a detention center and then deport you, that I think is a serious violation of individual liberty and I don't think there's any good justification for it. So I favor moving from the current presumption of control towards the presumption of liberty. That's sort of my, that's my sort of moderate end of my positions. I am also very open to the idea of and very sympathetic to the idea of moving towards an even more explicit form of open borders in which it's more akin to the border between the U.S. and Mexico being no different from the border between Maryland and Virginia. That is, there are no checkpoints. There's no specific policing of the border. You don't have to get any permission to cross. But I recognize that because of the current arrangements of nation states and current inequalities among nation states and you know, concerns people might have about infectious disease or crime or terrorism, that people might want to have checkpoints where they can do a little bit of screening for something like infectious diseases or a serious violent criminal record or participation in a violent organization. And if we rolled border policing back to just that, then I would be pretty much fine with it. I wouldn't be you know, super happy. I'm worried about the dangers with any form of policing, but I would say, okay, that's at least consistent with a presumption of liberty and the remaining restrictions you have are justified by a very serious public policy concern. Whereas right now the presumption is just, you can't move here unless you fit into some very narrow category that our federal government has carved out. And I don't think that the government has some legitimate authority to 
restrict people without a very good reason. It's a very narrow category, especially in Canada. I mean, my dad came here escaping a war and he is a like high skilled laborer. He has a master's in structural engineering um, from an American school. So he tried to get American citizenship after he finished school there and they just wouldn't give it to him. They were like, sorry, you got to go back. And he's like, but there's a war. I don't really want to go back. And uh, it took him like three tries to get into Canada. Um, and the wow. reason he ended up getting in was not because of his labor expertise, was because Quebec was in the middle of a culture war. And they said, if you can speak French, you can come to Canada. Wow. So just the fact that he spoke French ended up being the reason why he was allowed to come in. Got him. It's not not like his like high skill, not not his engineering degree or anything. It's just, and so it ends up being really weird and arbitrary oh yeah um, and i mean i guess we that kind of parallels regular policing as well when you see um the kinds of decisions made i mean i guess there there's also systemic reasons that others experience it more brutally and i think also you know an immigrant coming from the middle east is not seen as as ideal as an immigrant coming from norway i think trump explicitly said that at one point you know um so yeah i definitely see that playing out and i think i remember just thinking why is this necessary like why is it necessary to have all these kind of it's almost like we're micromanaging the border. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's this great paper by Benjamin Powell um, that argues that immigration restrictions amount to an attempt at centrally planning the labor market. So all of the arguments Austrian economists make against centralized planning of the entire economy work against the government saying, well, this is the level of migration of workers we're going to allow in and this is which sectors we're going to allow a certain number of visas in and so on all of the arguments that economists make against central planning in other sectors work against the type of planned immigration system that we have um, and especially and that's just on knowledge grounds once you get into incentive grounds then we get all of these resources wasted on lobbying the government both to alter who's allowed in, how many are allowed in, and as you see in the virtual wall example, who is going to get hired to provide various tools to coercively stop people from coming in. And so all of these resources are destroyed because various forms of productive economic activity are prevented, because people are prevented from discovering which arrangements of economic activity can be most productive. And because a bunch of people are expending large amounts of resources to try to get special favors from the government under this system. So there's huge amounts of economic destruction that's happening as a result of this micromanaging of immigration. And, you know, there are moves that would make absolutely no sense from a perspective of if you were thinking that the government wanted to increase how productive society was, right? Like saying, okay, we're going to expend a bunch of resources helping your dad get an advanced degree, but then we're not going to allow him to engage in productive activity using the skills he learned within the US, mm-hmm. right? Like, 
the amount that somebody with an advanced degree can do to benefit others using the skills that they learned in the process of their advanced degree is often pretty extraordinary. Um, but we say, no, no, we're just going to expend resources on financing an educational institution that's going to cultivate these skills. And then we're going to use force to prevent our citizens from reaping the benefits of that. Right. Well, even if you're having a narrowly nationalist perspective that doesn't care about your father's well-being, right? Um, even from that sort of selfish, horrible perspective, you're shooting yourself in the foot by saying, let's expend a bunch of resources training people, helping them cultivate skills, and then say, no, 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 we don't want to benefit from those skills. If you try to do something that our citizens will benefit from with those skills, we will use state violence to make sure that you stop. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty wild position. Yeah, when you put it that way, it's very, it's, it's, a, it's a lot. I remember my dad was telling me um, he, when he applied to uh, Canada and he didn't get in, one of his friends got in and his friend at the time was he baked uh, pastries like the mm -hmm. you know but you know, or but some people baklava no but go on. Yeah, he, he made he was a baker of those and so my dad's friend got in because canada was like yeah there's a demand for pastry chefs but there's not a demand for structural engineers right now um and then 20 years later now there's a, a huge demand for structural engineers and so i guess my position was always like i guess you can't know um yeah so how, you're saying. how can you know from looking from that that point how what demand is going to look like in a few years or so can we go if if hypothetically all borders were open what um what relationship or what would that do to the uh private property as an idea do you do you know what i'm getting at yeah i i'm not sure i know what you're getting at but i mean there's interesting questions there so one view and it's close to my view is that um open borders is actually a corollary of robust respect for private property because what an immigration restriction tells a business owner is you are not allowed to invite someone onto your property to willingly do a job for you that you have asked them to do in exchange for money. So in some sense, the um, existing immigration restrictions are a restriction on the private property rights of both uh, of the uh, owners of businesses who would like to hire immigrant workers and of landlords who would like to rent to willing tenants who are willing to move into their apartment buildings. It's a um, restriction that the government is placing on what types of voluntary exchanges may take place. So one view is um, any deviation from open borders is, it, is itself a violation of private property rights of citizens. And uh, But I don't think that's exactly what you were getting at. I think you were potentially getting at an argument that someone might have for uh, why open borders might actually undermine private property or move us towards a world without private property yeah and something or like what arguments is, like that but i'd like to hear the specific one you have in mind no i think you were going there yeah like what is your view of private property basically i think is what i'm mm -hmm. getting at. okay it's a big one but i think yeah. he's up for it sure so my view of private property is that some set of private property rights are important and socially useful for a couple reasons um so 
Uh, one reason is that private property provides beneficial incentives for the owners, because if you own a resource or own a piece of land or own a capital good, then you have incentives to use it in ways that will make it more valuable to others because you can reap the benefits um, of the stream of payments that others are willing to give you for having that, for improving that private property in terms of how it is used in ways that others um, like it. So for instance, if you own land that could be used as a nature preserve, and it turns out that people really value the environmental amenities that it has, then keeping it as a nature preserve might be the profit maximizing activity if you can get tourists to come and see it. Um, by contrast, if you keep it as, uh, if you leave it unowned, then there might be incentives to just go in and deplete it. Um, because nobody can reap the long run benefits of um, doing it, of maintaining and improving it, and nobody has the ability to exclude others who deteriorate it. So that argument is often called the tragedy of the commons. But I'm also a big fan of Eleanor Ostrom. Ostrom vibe over here. <laughs> yeah. So, but private property rights aren't the only way to solve the tragedy of the commons. So, what Ostrom observed and documented in her book, Governing the Commons, is that in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, people are able to maintain common property quite well. So they're able to set up some system of rules, often informal social norms among the local communities of resource users that allow them to say, prevent overfishing of a fishery or to uh, promote or prevent overgrazing of communal pastures or to promote um, a set of shared norms regarding how we use an irrigation system or how we manage a forest ecosystem. And so while private property rights are one way to create both incentives and knowledge that encourage more productive uses and resor of resources, and there's a really robust economic literature on this from studies that use the Economic Freedom of the World Index and on, on an empirical level to the works of property rights economists like Harold Demsetz and Armin Alcian to the works of Austrian market process economists like Friedrich Hayek um, that all find these advantages of private property. There also are advantages of other forms of property systems that are more common systems. And sometimes when you have a well-functioning commons, a government stepping in and imposing private property rights saying, oh, well, this, this land isn't private, it's all communal. You probably have bad incentives. How about we just uh, parcel that out for you, break that up into a bunch of private plots, um, as was done in Africa, for instance, to a um, group of people called the Maasai, right? So they broke apart their private property, and their, their common property, rather, and made it into private property. And that destroyed a bunch of their informal institutions that were promoting sustainable and uh, productive management of it. Often with grazing lands, what it might mean is previously you were able to sort of move your livestock across a wider range of land. So depending on rainfall patterns, um, you could adapt to those changing rainfall patterns and poor rainfall in one area of the grazing lands wouldn't mean that all of your cattle um, starve or something. But once you break it up into small parcels, you can't have your livestock migrate like that and if you get bad rain on your area and your neighbor gets good rain on their parcel, it's a good year for your neighbor and a terrible year for you, as opposed to um, you being able to both use the good land um, 
in that year. And then if the rain's better on your land, on the land, on a different area of the land, another year, um, you move to using that area of the land because you have a broader pooled area of grazing land. And so Colin Harris and Peter Leeson have a paper in World Development, which is a development economics journal, called uh, Wealth Destroying Private Property Rights, in which they argue that when states come in and impose private property rights in situations where the benefits of establishing private property rights are in fact less than the costs of doing so, then you're going to see the destruction of wealth. And so where we're going to see the good development of private property rights is in situations where we allow them to be developed by the users on the ground, by people saying, I want to protect my property, um, or I want to claim this as mine, and they invest more in the resources of establishing these things, and the property rights are recognized by community members. And so the use of local knowledge of what the relevant externalities are that the property rights can help fend off um, winds up being very useful for making sure that you have productive property rights arrangements as opposed to destructive property rights arrangements. So broadly, I'm pretty favorable towards private property, but certain forms of private property, especially those that are imposed from the top down by central governments or by development economists who are coming in from outside and saying, I know the way to help you stop being poor. We'll give you private property rights, right? Those types of interventions can wind up doing a lot of harm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that's imperialism, basically. Exactly. So, yeah, that's... Um, that made me think of the the Chaz or the Chad. I prefer to call it the yeah, it's definitely the Chad district <laughs> instead of the zone because it's a, it's like a Chad. Um, yeah. But yeah, I I know now Fox News referred it to the U.S. Chaz border, so they've officially <laughs> recognized it as an autonomous uh, area. But I can totally see that happening where the government comes in and says like, okay, we're breaking this up. Like this cannot. Yeah. Uh, this cannot happen. And uh, I mean, I have a few reservations about it. But uh, what is their stated goal? I haven't been really keeping track. They have like demands, right? Yeah. So they have a list of demands that was posted to Medium. It involves a lot of fairly radical changes to the criminal justice system. Uh, things like freeing various prisoners. Um, I think disbanding the Seattle Police Department. Yeah. Um, referring certain cases involving police brutality to federal level jurisdiction rather than just local jurisdiction, I presume because of the idea that the prosecutors locally have ties to the, um, to the um, cops, and so they are going to be less willing to engage in. Uh, that's why. Yeah. I think they're also, they may also have demand, they also have some demands regarding retrying um, black prisoners the idea there, I assume, is they weren't given a genuine jury trial by a jury of their peers, um, because often the jury selection process will, um, even though it's not supposed to allow this, will involve prosecutors sort of strike. Prosecutors and defense attorneys have the ability to um, remove jurors from the jury pool to say, "I want to exclude that one." So there's going to be a juror. There's a juror selection process where. They sort of interview them. It's called Vordeer. So they're interviewing these jurors, and sometimes they're um, excluded. Uh, and each side gets to say who they exclude. And often, um, even though this is not supposed to happen, in many cases, the prosecutor will exclude black jurors, and they'll just say it was for some other reason, because you can say whatever reason you want, and you get to do some number of challenges, I think, without having to give a reason also. 
And so the idea is that even ones with full jury trials didn't have a genuine trial by a jury of their peers. And then a lot of criminal prosecutions in the U.S. don't involve trial by jury at all, because what prosecutors do is they stack up charges and they say, look, if we go to trial and you lose, you're facing enough mandatory minimum sentences that you're going to be spending a real hefty chunk of time in prison. Isn't it better for you to just accept this plea deal I'm offering you? And so some people aren't even given a trial by a jury, much less a trial by a jury of their peers. And so I think, based on my reading of that demand, the idea is that large portions of black prisoners have not received a trial by a jury of their peers. I'd argue that due to the charge stacking and plea bargaining, a lot of prisoners of other races also haven't had access to trial by jury. Um, but notwithstanding that, I, I think they have a demand for freeing and retrying um, some number of uh, black prisoners. And there are other demands. It's been a while since I've read their demands, but it's this set of demands, fairly radical ones that they're making to the um, state government. I Last I heard, and this is just based on Twitter, there's a lot of misinformation going around, so I'm not super confident in my knowledge of anything involved in the autonomous zone. Um, but uh, last I had heard, the police had re-entered the zone and were now in uh, back in the precinct station. And so some of the radical potential of the uh, Chaz or the Chad um, in terms of it uh, claiming territory and keeping police out of this precinct station, that has now been lost. But uh, my understanding, which admittedly I haven't, I haven't been checking the most recent news on this, is that there's still various actions happening within this district. Mm -hmm. um, so it's essentially still a street fair, but they're no longer excluding the police the way they previously were. Oh, interesting. I'm, I'm. I, this might sound stupid, but I'm, I'm even confused about like what the they're just gonna like chill there for. They're occupying it, right, until the demands are met. Mm -hmm. So you can think of it as similar to a street fair or to the Occupy Wall Street protests. So it's serving sort of a dual function, as far as I understand it. Uh, one function being building various proofs of concept for self-governance, so people engaging in various forms of social cooperation with one another to say hey, look, we can engage in this type of dispute resolution without police, or hey, look, this is a way of engaging in mutual aid. So part of it is we're going to do mutual aid projects and participatory democracy together, and then part of it is um, we're going to be engaged in this ongoing street protest to both raise awareness of police brutality and have this list of demands. It maybe differs from Occupy in the sense that it has some unified list of demands, whereas Occupy was more, we are generally saying we are mad about Wall Street corruption, we are mad the banks got bailed out and we got sold out, and so on. Oh um, my god. I just read a book about Occupy a few months ago by David Graeber. Oh, interesting. Who I have many disagreements with, um, and I felt so trigged because the whole time he was just like talking, and I, 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 my work is in popular protest, mm -hmm. so he was kind of... Um, I don't even know, want to get into it, but basically, I, I just strongly uh, did not align with his vision of, of and I had a lot of- You have to tell us what he was saying, though. Yeah, so he <laughs> was really into this idea of, like, horizontalism and protest, mm -hmm. and, um, like, he's against the more, um, this is going to be a taboo to say, but, like, two libertarians. Uh-oh. Um, against the more Leninist uh, uh, mm -hmm. 
take on on having a leader or of some sort or a group of leaders in the protests um and in my thesis i argued in favor of uh revolutionary leadership not necessarily like a dictatorship for the proletariat or whatever or vanguard but a so, so, I'm not a horizontalist. Okay. Um, so you favor like I, either a vanguard or democratic centralism or a mass yeah. line or something like that? Yeah. Okay. So in, in my thesis, what I, I argued um, was that you can get re revolutionist movement through horizontalism, but to reach revolutionist change, like social hmm. change, you need to unify the protests under a cohesive ideology. And unifying mm -hmm. under a cohesive ideology typically does not cannot be achieved through horizontalism. But okay. but it, it, this kind of it, it's funny because there was um, there's a the discourse on the chad is hilarious among leftists right now okay yeah what are they saying um, because the anarchists which i guess nathan is also i don't know if you if you identify with the anarchists or the libertarians or i guess that's the i consider myself both an anarchist and a libertarian i'm okay. sort of a left-wing market anarchist if you want to okay be specific yeah so so there's been this like discourse of between anarchists and uh uh uh, Marxists and it's so funny because the Twitter beef is so petty among the two yeah, groups. I can imagine. And the anarchists are like, you see, Marxists, we were able to establish this without a vanguard. We were able to establish the Chad with like full horizontalism, and none of the Marxists were saying like, oh, this isn't gonna. Work. They're like, yeah, you're gonna say this isn't gonna work, but it's gonna work. And all like, there's some Marxists that are like. No, that's fine. Like it's it'll it might work. Like that that's good for you. Feels a bit early to be like proud <laughs> um, of it, to be honest. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely have reservations about it. How long has it been hap like happening? I don't know. Like not long, right? Yeah. Let me, let me check. I it's I think it's been about a week. Thank you. Yeah, that's what I was gonna guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I I mean I haven't checked yet. That's just my guess, but. Um, I see it. I I kind of envision it turning into like the Ancapistan and the JREG show, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I love that YouTube channel. Yeah. yeah. That's the same. We're we're obsessed with him. We can't go through one pod without mentioning him. Um <laughs> we want him on the pod. <clears throat> Anti-centrism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But anyway, I think bringing it back to um, I guess borders in the chad so to speak i think that um you know it is feasible to loosen restrictions in this way where we're not being like like having these really silly micromanaged criteria like looking mm -hmm. at what kind of job someone does or whatever yep. but then i think about things like like let's say the whole world was open borders and would that put us like but we still have the terrorist provision so there was and i think what i'm saying now is not gonna make sense because like my brain is kind of going like the like all kinds of stuff maybe i'm this is not relevant but i was thinking of that girl who joined isis mm -hmm. and then her own country decided to make her stateless and so then now like they took away her citizenship <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and then now she's like okay well i'm just gonna chill in syria right yeah. but then if i was a syrian government i would not want her to be in syria because she went there to join isis so i would mm -hmm. say like you know that is valid grounds to say i don't want you here mm -hmm. right 
I think like yeah. my vision. There's always people people don't want. Where are they gonna go? Yeah, so then they just I'm get thinking, shunted like, around. Where, but I don't know. Where do you go if um nobody likes you? Nobody likes you. Age-old problem. Yeah, I mean, there's a range of options, right? One, obviously, that if we're doing open borders plus states, is whichever government picks you up is likely to be able to either put you on trial for crimes, right? So conspiracy to engage in some act of terrorist violence in the case that you're describing. Mm -hmm. Or you get extradited to the country that actually can charge you with crimes because maybe you didn't facilitate a terrorist attack in the country that you're entering, but you facilitated the terrorist attack elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so in that case, you would presumably be extradited to that other country. Um, now, one reason that countries might try to sort of shunt them off rather than doing that is engaging in a trial is costly yeah, and holding people in prison is costly. Yeah. So you would ideally want to place the fiscal costs on some other government rather than bearing the, having the fiscal burden go on your own citizens. Now, if we're going more extreme and going away from open borders plus states and instead saying, welcome to Ancapistan, we would instead <laughs> um, decide uh, to, uh, you, you might say that in order to enter various types of autonomous regions that are operated through private property, um, as, as forms of private property, maybe you have certain communities that are run like shopping malls where there's some singular landowner that collects rents and then uses those rents to um, uh, rents from various businesses and apartment complexes to produce various forms of public goods, so produce green spaces in the area and so on. Mm -hmm. These types of things have been advocated by certain people like Fred Foldberry, who's sort of a hybrid between an anarcho-capitalist and a Georgist. Um, and prior to that, we're also advocated as proprietary communities by people like Spencer Heath. So what these groups might, these organizations might do is they might say, in general, we've got open access, but just like businesses will sometimes have a list of people who can't enter, um, these larger communities might keep those sorts of lists. They might have certain people who are on sort of a shared list of well-known violent criminals, and the sort of mall security is told, if these people come into the proprietary community, you are to exclude them, right? Um, so that might be one way that's done. And then the question will be, well, who's going to take them? Well, if you want to live your life as somebody who's been put on this blacklist by large ranges of private property owners, then there's a profit opportunity for providing you with safe harbor. And so what some anarcho-capitalist economists like Robert Murphy have argued is that what would emerge under such a system is sort of a system of things that are like private prisons, except the criminals have a choice of which private prison they go to because other proprietary communities basically exclude them, but there are some uh, private property owners who say, I'm going to market specifically to those who aren't wanted by other proprietary communities. And so um, at that point, those uh, entrepreneurs who are providing um, various essentially um, hotel type services to those who have been put on blacklists due to their record of violent offenses um, have an incentive, unlike those that those who currently operate prisons do, they have an incentive to provide a space that people actually want to live in. Whereas since prisons place people there and don't give them the option of leaving, even if it's leaving to another highly secured area, 
a prison warden doesn't have any incentive to provide governance that makes a prison safer or to provide decent medical care, except the possible risk of a lawsuit or of being dragged in front of a legislative hearing where some progressive senator says, now I've read that you have prisoners dying of COVID and there's lots of prison sexual assault. What do you say to that, right? You could get embarrassed or you could uh, face a lawsuit or you could face a public hearing, but you're not going to directly lose your funding typically as a result of that. Whereas if your funding is contingent on people who have been blacklisted from proprietary communities um, saying, okay, I'm going to live in that place, then you have an incentive to both provide security that prevents them from entering uh, the other places' proprietary communities because under this hypothetical anarcho-capitalist system, there's presumably um, various sorts of dispute resolution organizations, and you might get sued if you don't have sufficient security to prevent the, your tenants from coordinating terrorist attacks. Um, but um, you're also going to lose all your customers if you maintain an environment in which there's brutal human rights violations. And so you would see the emergence of something that would look kind of like a um, system of prison choice in the sense in which neoliberals and libertarians will often argue for school choice. Um, so that's one argument for what might happen in a world of relatively free migration under a system of sort of private property anarchism, whether that's anarcho-capitalism, geo-libertarianism, or a more left-wing sort of market anarchism. And I'm not saying that's specifically what I advocate um, or that that's specifically what would happen, but that could be what would happen if we're talking about a stateless world of private property. If we're talking about a system of open borders, but there's still states, then probably there would be some people that no states would want, and they would ultimately have to, like, some state would have to put them on trial and either um, execute them or incarcerate them. And I'm not saying I'm favorable to that idea either. All systems of social organization are imperfect in the hard cases, and there are always trade-offs. But these are some of the things that might happen under these types of radically liberalized worlds. And I would uh, find in both of these cases it to be much more favorable than a system of highly militarized border policing in, and of harshly restricted um, labor mobility. Because as we discussed earlier in the interview, hyper-militarized border policing causes human rights abuses and profit opportunities associated with crony capitalism. And um, restrictions on immigration in general prevent people from uh, seeking out both the social relations and the economic relations that are most productive for them, and those that are most productive for them will often be those that are most productive for other people and for society as a whole. Damn. So that's like, that's like I don't even know if this is a real thing, but you know when people are on sex offender lists and then they can't mm -hmm. live in certain places, so then there's just neighborhoods with like sex. Yeah. Is that a thing? Is that, I don't know. That, that was like an Arrested Development episode. Wow. That was a thing. So, so there is a documentary about a trailer park for exactly that sort of person. It's called Pervert Park. I oh, God. It several watch. years ago. And so th that's not what the place is named. That's the name of the documentary. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, like... Yeah, no, they have a much nicer development name, right? So individuals who are on those registries would probably have some choice among different developments that um, have seized these profit opportunities. and. Um, they probably wouldn't choose the one that's specifically called Pervert Park. And they do face certain problems of like people from the local community sometimes coming there to like engage in violence, right? Because people get really mad about pedophilia, right? For understandable reasons. 
And so yeah. there are some people who come in and they're like, oh, we want to, you know, kill some, uh, you know, some sex offenders. And, you know, a lot of them are people who engage in child sexual abuse. Not all of them are because there are other things that wind up on the sex offender registry. So that's one problem with government created sex offender registries is that it sometimes lumps together some of the most severe crimes, right? Child sexual abuse with some less severe crimes, right? So like indecent exposure yeah. might be something that could put you on a sex offender registry in some places. And so you'd have somebody who, you know, raped a kid and they're on, they're living in this development, maybe next to somebody who's, um, who did a free the nipple action. Right. I mean, um, this, is, this is the problem with prisons too, though. Like, yeah. I feel like, you know, you have someone who might have like murdered someone next to someone who like smoked some weed. Oh, know? absolutely. That to me yeah. is wild. And that's part of why prisons can act as schools for crime, right? Because you find yourself simultaneously as a result of your felony record restricted from a range of economic opportunities. And once you're there, you're building these social networks with people who are active in criminal enterprises. And maybe you'll find that in order to engage in productive exchange in the prison and in order to have safety and security, you need to join a gang. And so you came in as somebody who committed a sort of one-off offense. And by the time you're out, you're like, all right, well, I guess I'm a member of the Mexican mafia now. Um, so. Right. Damn. It's like dark. Jake Scarbeck's book, The Social Order of the Underworld, is excellent on prison gangs, by the way. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's another topic that I think we're, we've been having a, a big discussion about is prisons and prison abolition and mm-hmm. stuff like that and, and abolition of police. Um, and I mean, I think it faces similar issues from a leftist perspective. So when I hear like, you know, this idea of these sorts of private prisons, this ANCAP idea you were describing... Uh, like a sort of prison choice thing. I guess one thing that would worry me is that, I mean, not that I have sympathy for ISIS people, but like if that say something more trivial became criminalized and, oh, yeah. um, and then I've like, I guess then it, it would also be if, if we still had these major class inequalities, yeah. then, you know, the poorer people might be more susceptible to like being exploited by these prison uh these people who own the prisons because they would have less access to like media they would have less of a choice of choosing a better more expensive one and so to speak so then i guess that's where my reservations i mean i've yeah i'm very both private like private prisons private police and then public prisons public police they both seem not great to me oh yeah but they're, they're all awful to some degree. It's just a compared to what sort of question. Yeah. The question you want to ask is what incentives do the enforcers have? And right. so the enforcers under a system of state-provided criminal justice will often have incentives to lobby for more incarceration, whether they're a private contractor or a public prison bureaucracy that has a guards union. In both mm-hmm. cases, you'll lobby for more incarceration. And part of the reason that you would do that more than in the system in which you're just offering a service to people who are potentially moving there because other communities aren't allowing them in, um, is that um, it's not is that when you're directly getting a contract, getting more contracts from the government, getting additional contracts means getting more money at the expense of someone else. It's not you, you don't directly bear the costs. You mostly get the tax funded benefits, 
and you have the option of lobbying a officials to force someone to be at your specific prison. Right. Whereas under the hypothetical that I gave you, which how stable that hypothetical is, is an open question. Maybe it just deteriorates into a state fairly quickly, and this mm -hmm. gets reintroduced due to rent-seeking by these prison entrepreneurs. But um, the idea would be you have to actually make the space attractive enough to people that they will be willing to move there. And if your system is awful enough, they have the right to exit. Um, right. which is a right that prisoners do not have. I mean, they could maybe request transfers, but for the most part, they don't have in prisons, detention centers, and jails, whether nominally private or nominally public under the current system. That doesn't mean there aren't perverse incentives. There are. That doesn't mean there aren't risks of inequality, right? A highly productive um, or highly wealthy criminal would have the opportunity to say, well, I'm going to pay to go to the most expensive and fancy resort sort of prison colony, and maybe somebody who's desperately poor would, and has also been blacklisted from communities, would not have that option. They would have to go to the poorest one. The other thing to keep in mind under this system is um, each of those proprietary communities, every person they exclude, they're bearing costs from losing out on their productive activity and their purchasing. And so cho the choosing to exclude people under that system is costly because you're foregoing whatever benefits they bring. And that's true under the system of government-managed immigration restrictions as well. But the difference is there's a system of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs where the individuals who are uh, interacting within the U.S. government um, don't reap all of the – don't directly reap the stream of payments that comes from economic growth within the U.S. They instead reap concentrated benefits from redistributing uh, some of that wealth. Whereas if, on the other hand, some proprietary community is run by a landowner who wants to maximize their expected stream of payments, then they are directly foregoing benefits each time they exclude someone unless they anticipate that the losses from letting that person enter um, in the form of, say, them engaging in destructive activity that drives away other residents or other buyers or other sellers exceeds that. And so there's more of an incentive for them to be open than there is under a system where the political order can be easily captured by, um, say, private prison contractors that run immigration detention systems or by Raytheon or Boeing or Elbit systems. Mm -hmm. um, that's not inherently going to be the case. There's risks of capture in all systems. And so there's risks of institutional decay in the hypothetical anarcho-capitalist system that I described, just like there are risks of institutional decay under democratic states. And so one thing we need to maintain under any system, whatever the formal institutional order is, is an ideology of openness and an ideology of respect for human rights and an ideology of peace and anti-racism because maintaining that ideology and maintaining some degree of activism around these issues is important because that allows us to have people who are going to be pushing back on any of these abuses when they occur because right. no system is going to be free of them. And so we need somebody who's going to be pushing back, and we want a general public that is going to, when they hear about them, think, oh, that's awful upon hearing about it, rather than think, oh, yeah, they got what was coming to them. <laughs> um, so cultivating a particular type of discussion and dialogue and activism is going to be important under any social system, whether it's formally anarchist or formally statist. Um, and then the question we can ask as we're comparing different types of systems is what are the incentives like 
and what types of dysfunctions is this going to lead to and how do those dysfunctions compare to what we'll see under other systems? Right. I mean, I think my sort of reservation here is also like if we're maintaining the current sort of capitalist economic mm -hmm. system, yeah. um, but we have this open border system where we have also these kind of prisons, the ANCAP mm -hmm. prisons or whatever, mm -hmm. um, then I guess like to me that would just recreate the same issues that we're having mm -hmm. now because we're having the capital still quite centralized. Um, yeah. And so we're having like a lot of the resources still kind of owned by a small amount of people. And so we are kind of mm -hmm. subject to their power as well. So yeah. like, like what you're saying about, you know, with ideology, I think also we need to sort of uh, make change our means of like change our economic system a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe open borders would help that. Um, but but yeah, so I think, you know, it's funny because I find among some libertarians, not you, but um, some of them will argue that we have to abolish like any sort of social welfare or any sort of um, anything like that before we get open borders and my oh, view yeah. almost the opposite on that front. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's my... Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I don't know that to me, I get where it's coming from, but I, yeah, I don't know. I still see then similar inequalities getting reproduced and then that being an overall net bad for yeah. everyone else, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, that is a real risk. And some people will make the argument in response to people who say, well, we can't have open borders with a welfare state. Some people will make the argument, I think this line comes from Alex Narasta, though he may have taken it from someone else, that you should build a wall around the welfare state instead of the country. And so you could make certain types of redistributive services contingent on having, say, a social security number. Or right. um, rather than saying we are going to have militarized borders, restrictions on who can come in and work, bans on certain people working, bans on certain people living certain places. Yeah. Because we're afraid of them becoming a drain on public services. The other thing to point to is the existing empirical literature, which for the most part doesn't show that those sorts of drains are happening. Yeah. And then the third thing is just there are there's the problem of taking too many fiscal resources from a government is also a problem with um, uh, border militarization because there's rent seeking by firms and government bureaucracies in the immigration enforcement area, right? So that's one side, but your concerns are less from that direction and more from the opposite direction of does open borders reproduce inequalities, especially when it's coupled with a capitalist or neoliberal order. Right. And to some degree, there are synergies between movements for economic equity and um, immigrants' rights movements, right? So yeah, sure. a lot of migrant rights work is closely tied to labor movements, mm -hmm. especially some of the like farm worker unionization stuff. And that's progress compared to where things used to be, right? Like yeah. uh, Cesar Chavez would call INS agents, Immigration and Naturalization Service, which was the predecessor to ICE and Customs and Border Protection in the US, um, to get them to deport migrant workers who were competing with his union workers. Whereas now we largely have a union movement, especially in, among farm workers who are involved in the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, that it has a lot of undocumented members 
right. and is pushing more for a sort of jointly migrant rights and labor organizing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess another thing is that I kind of tend to think about when I push back on that is like, I don't see how, like how it makes sense to say, okay, you were lucky enough to be born here. So you get healthcare, but Mm -hmm. if you're born here, then you don't deserve healthcare. Like even being in Canada, I feel bad for a lot of Americans who are mm-hmm. having a rough time with oh, yeah. thinking like why do I deserve it and you know they don't you know um, and so I think also that's kind of where I tend to push back on the sort of they're gonna drain the welfare state My, yeah. I'm just kind of like so fucking what you know, <laughs> the fleet well, I mean the wealth does need to be so created from probably the people participating in the state yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean what Nathan was saying like also it's just not the case that they're not creating anything either yeah but yeah, yeah I guess my, my point on that front of like I don't think where you're born should determine whether mm-hmm. or not you should like live you know um, even though that does determine it in many of the cases but I think you know I, a lot of my political ideology has kind of come from that intuition i think whether it's through caring about imperialism or anything on that front and i think you know when i think about okay what is the solution to these border policing issues one of the first things i think about is foreign policy because i think you know a lot of these migrant crises come from these foreign policy failures and i mean i guess they're not failures because some people do profit from it like cheney for instance but um when i say failures i mean moral failures so to speak um you know and failures of stated ends right the end is we're going to build the the stated end is we're going to build democracy in iraq we're going to engage in nation building and the result is we've you know destroyed a country killed Mm -hmm. however many number of people and utterly failed in the stated end of nation building. Yeah. Um, I don't believe them, though, when they said that was... Oh, yeah. No, they're often quite (laughs) sincere, at least many of them. Yeah. Uh, I I would agree on that front. But, 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 yeah, I mean, like you saw, you know, Clinton and Obama's war on Libya created a huge migrant crisis where people were taking boats to Europe. And, you know, this created a reactionary backlash in Europe, but... Mm -hmm. I was saying, you know, then stop, get your governments to stop bombing these places. Like, I, I don't, no one wants to leave their country just because, you know, there's always a reason. And so my, the way I like to tackle it first before even being like, we need open borders is to be like, we need to stop, we need to get our countries out of these places. Um, a lot of the Syrians that fled fled from groups like Al-Nusra, which received a ton of money from the U.S. And so it's just stuff like that where I'm like, or, or sanctions is another thing that, you know, causes economic migration. So, yeah, I guess I, I approach it from that front, but I think it's also true that we could definitely, you know, make the border slightly less militarized. Yeah. And the two are intertwined because U.S. militarism abroad is what leads to the innovations in military technology and social control techniques and the creation of these private military contractors that have entrenched uh, interests and 
connections to politicians right. um, who will then lobby to militarize the border. And so you can't separate military imperialism and military hegemony from border militarization. Yeah. Because the innovations in social control that are necessary for foreign intervention are the seeds of these domestic forms of social control related to police militarization, related to border militarization, related to mass surveillance. And right. so one of the core themes of my work, building on work by my dissertation advisor, Chris Coyne, and his co-author, Abby Hall, they have a book called Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism, is that you can't separate neatly these areas of state violence. Innovation in any one of them increases the coercive capacity of a state right. and increases the tools they have at their disposal for social control. So if you send someone over to Vietnam and have him work in an elite force recon unit that initiates combat in a huge number of cases and is, has a very high level of lethality, well, he's going to come home and, oh, look, he founds the first SWAT team at the LAPD. And now we have SWAT teams all over the country engaging in things like no-knock raids, getting surplus military equipment from the federal government through what's called the 1033 program, uh, kicking down people's doors, shooting people, killing people like Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a direct consequence of foreign intervention creating both people with a particular set of skills in the use of social control and violence and creating large amounts of weaponry for right. targeted violence, which then none of the, those skills and that weaponry doesn't disappear once you leave a foreign occupation. Yeah. It's still there and officials are going to find another way to use it. And that's often going to be militarized policing and militarized border policing. Well, I was reading, I just finished reading Alex Vitale's book, The End of Policing, and he was talking about policing in schools in the States and how like the even the schools are getting militarized. And I can't even imagine that. Like, can you imagine at our elementary school if there was just like people patrolling with guns? Oh, that would be so whack. Yeah. And um, I, I read a headline like yesterday, I think, and it was saying like police, like the school police return their grenade launchers back. Yeah, I They're, saw that headline. And I'm like, why were you having grenade launchers at a school? Like, yeah, what, which that? kids were you planning to blow up? Like, I thought that was what the U.S. did abroad, not to their yeah. school children here. Oh my god, I just, I couldn't believe it. I think that's, I don't know. Yeah. It's, that's pretty wild. It's, it's pretty intense, and I wonder how much of it is police just want to have it because they think it's cool to have it, right? The people who tend to sort into these professions are people who, you know, grew up watching action movies and uh, thinking, not, not that movies or pop culture makes you violent, that's not what I'm saying, but the sorts of people who, are, who think, oh yeah, violence is cool, violence is macho, I want to have these tools even if I'm never going to use them. Right. And so there's a federal program that you can apply to to get surplus military equipment, and you're looking at what's available, and you say, grenade launcher? Hell yeah! And you check it off, and the yeah. federal officials don't have any particular incentive not to give it to you, so they, they're not thinking, oh, well, wait, why do you need that in a school? All right, send it to Los Angeles. Um, Traumatizing the children to feel cool. <laughs> like. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, I know they used it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. I guess like they wouldn't necessarily show it. It's just, yeah, like, I feel like it's maybe they just have it around the station and someone yeah. comes in and 
It's like, man, I feel so badass looking at this uh, equipment that we've got. I mean, I know I would, honestly. I'd like to take a look at a grenade launcher. Um, my my uncle in Lebanon, uh, his arms there are totally unregulated. Anyway, yeah, so Nathan has some book recommendations about, uh, if you guys want to read more about Borders. Um, I was just talking about the one that Brian Kaplan released, though I'm not a fan. Uh, what other books you got, Nathan? Yeah, so um, when it comes to border militarization, I would highly recommend uh, Empire of Borders by Todd Miller. So in this book, Miller argues for, or rather argues that, the U.S. government has both militarized borders domestically and started to export that militarization abroad. So the Border Patrol Tactical Unit, which we didn't get into discussing today, but they're essentially the Border Patrol's top SWAT team. They were established in the 1980s. Um, they have gone abroad as part of U.S. military interventions, as well as as part of State Department and USAID aid to governments where we're not officially engaged in warfare. And they basically train officials in these other governments on border policing. So as part of um, Operation Iraqi Freedom, as part of the war in Afghanistan, they were there. They were training these new nation states in um, best practices for militarized border policing. They go to countries in Central America and offer training there on how to police your border. And so U.S. border policing practices are extending not just to U.S. citizens and those who attempt to enter the U.S., but to other countries to promote a hardening of borders around the world. If you want to understand more of the older history of how border militarization occurred, I would also recommend the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border, 1978 to 1992, by Timothy J. Dunn, who's a sociologist. And so he dug into some of the history of border militarization, mostly looking at a period from the 1960s uh, through the early 1990s. And so he looked at things like the creation of task forces that bring together DEA agents, Border Patrol agents, uh, members of the U.S. military, members of the CIA, and members of local law enforcement agencies to um, share various forms of military hardware and various forms of training in order to engage in militarized border policing to uh, restrict the flow of drugs. And then finally, to understand more generally how militarization happens domestically as a result of foreign intervention abroad and the innovations in social control that happen, I would recommend Chris Coyne and Abigail R. Hall's Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. They don't talk that much about border policing there, although they talk about it a little when they discuss drones, but that book really provides an overall framework for understanding how state violence abroad gives officials domestically the capabilities and the tools to engage in more repressive violence and civil liberties abuses at home. All right. Awesome. I have a long list of reading now. I keep adding more and more things where I'm like, I need to read this. And but that's, that's good. I don't read. So no, uh, thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks for coming on. You've, uh, I think you actually opened my mind on a lot of things, specifically open borders. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Oh. It's a pleasure.